Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Aminder. I'm Maria, and I'll be your host for today's episode. This episode will focus on June 2021 papers on cognitive and clinical indicators of Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment. I'll be covering 17 papers with sections that include the use of technology to assess cognition, semantic memory, cognitive tests, behavioral tests, oculomotor tests, and language adaptations. New cognitive tests are constantly being validated to make screening and diagnosis of Alzheimer's more efficient and accurate. Early clinical markers of Alzheimer's are also important when it comes to catching cognitive impairment early in the disease. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Before we jump in, I want to give a quick reminder that we only include summarized abstracts of the papers we cover. We don't review the full text articles or check the quality of the research, so be sure to check out the original paper if you are interested in any of the papers we cover here. A bibliography can be found in the episode notes of all the papers mentioned in this episode. I'll be using a few common abbreviations, AD for Alzheimer's disease, MCI for mild cognitive impairment, Rock curve for receiver operating characteristic curve, and AUC for area under the rock curve. These curves show you how well a test or marker is able to discriminate between two groups like AD and healthy controls. The value ranges from 0 to 1, and the closer to 1, the better the discriminative ability. Let's get started. We'll start with four studies that explore the use of technology in assessing cognition in AD and MCI. Paper number one is pretty unique. Virtual reality has been useful not just for video games, but also in clinical research settings. The study used virtual reality technology to test spatial orientation. The paper is titled, Two Immersive Virtual Reality Tasks for the Assessment of Spatial Orientation in Older Adults with and Without Cognitive Impairment, Concurrent Validity, Group Comparison, and Accuracy Results, by first author DaCosta and last author Bruki published in the Journal of International Neuropsychological Society. Difficulties navigating in space is common in MCI and AD. In this study, the authors test spatial orientation in 19 MCI patients and 29 healthy older adults in two virtual reality tasks. They created two immersive tasks, one where subjects had to position themselves in a maze using information from a map, and one that required learning a route based on topographic landmarks. Regular neuropsychological assessments were used for correlation analysis, and participant performances were compared between groups. The maze task correlated with visual perception, mental rotation, and planning, and was not related to age, education level, or technology use. The root learning task correlated with mental rotation, memory, and visual construction, and was only related to education. Both tasks distinguished MCI from controls and had moderate diagnostic accuracy for MCI. The authors concluded that their virtual reality tasks can be used in assessing spatial orientation in older adults. Paper number two also uses technology for AD research in an interesting way. It's titled GPS Driving, a Digital Biomarker for Preclinical Alzheimer's Disease, by first author Bayat and last author Rowe. 
published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. Complex tasks like driving may be impaired in preclinical AD before AD symptoms develop. In the study, the authors use in-vehicle GPS data and machine learning to tell cognitively normal older drivers with preclinical AD apart from those without preclinical AD. They followed 64 drivers with and 75 drivers without preclinical AD for one year with a commercial in-vehicle GPS data logger. Preclinical AD was determined using biomarkers in cerebral spinal fluid. Four random forest models were trained to detect preclinical AD. The score of the models in identifying preclinical AD was highest using age, APOE4 status, and driving. The AUC for this model was 0.96. Based on their results, the authors suggest that GPS driving may help distinguish preclinical AD in older adults. Paper number three is titled Correlating Natural Language Processing in Automated Speech Analysis with Clinician Assessment to Quantify Speech-Language Changes in Mild Cognitive Impairment in Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Young and last author Mustafa, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. Language impairment is common in neurodegenerative disorders. In the study, the authors argue that use of natural language processing in automated speech analysis may be more objective measures of language in people with MCI and AD. Clinicians rated word-finding difficulty, incoherence, perseveration, and errors in speech in 30 audio recordings from 30 AD, MCI, and healthy control subjects. Language processing and automated speech analysis extracted linguistic and acoustic data from speech recordings. The authors found that clinician agreement was high for word-finding difficulty, incoherence, and perseveration. Word-finding difficulty and incoherence help distinguish MCI and AD from controls, whereas perseveration and speech errors were less useful. Word-finding difficulty was explained by the number and duration of pauses, word duration, and syntactic complexity. Incoherence was explained by two factors, including increased average word duration, use of past tense, and changes in age of acquisition, and more negative valence. Natural language processing and automated speech analysis extracted data correlated significantly with clinician ratings. So based on this, the authors argue that Natural language processing and automated speech analysis are useful in assessing speech and language changes in neurodegeneration. Paper number four is our final paper incorporating technology into AD research. It's titled, Using a Digital Neurosignature to Measure Longitudinal Individual Level Change in Alzheimer's Disease, the Altoida Large Cohort Study, by first author Meyer and last author Tarnanis published in NPJ Digital Medicine. Altoida's digital neurosignature is a longitudinal cognitive test that uses two active digital biomarker metrics to assess cognition. It's about 10 minutes in length, faster than typical neuropsychological tests. In this study, the authors evaluate the digital neurosignature against standard neuropsychological assessments in over 500 healthy control, MCI, and AD participants. According to the abstract, the results show that the digital neurosignature was consistently more sensitive than standard assessments at detecting long-term change in terms of intra-individual variability across multiple tests in all three groups. Intra-individual variability of the digital neurosignature was also able to predict conversion from MCI to AD. 
The authors argue that the neurosignature offers a timely and remote option for testing that will improve assessment of AD. The next two papers focus on semantic memory in cognitive impairment, which is the memory of concepts and facts that are typically considered general knowledge. Paper number five is titled Intrusion Errors and Progression of Cognitive Deficits in Older Adults with Mild Cognitive Impairment and Pre-MCI States by first author Croco and last author Lowenstein, published in the Journal of Dementia in Geriatric Cognitive Disorders. Intrusion errors, and in particular a type of error called proactive semantic inference, may be an early sign of AD in people with amnestic MCI. Intrusion errors are essentially falsely remembered information, while proactive interference is when you need to replace something you've previously learned with something new in a similar context. In this study, the authors examined whether the percentage of semantic intrusion errors on a novel cognitive test, the LASI-L, could predict cognitive outcomes over 26 months in older adults initially diagnosed with amnestic MCI, pre-MCI, and normal cognition. Pre-MCI was defined as cognitive decline that does not meet full criteria for MCI. The authors found that on the LASI-L subscale, a cutoff of 44% intrusion errors distinguished between pre-MCI subjects who progressed to MCI over time and pre-MCI subjects who had normal cognition at follow-up. Semantic intrusion errors predicted 83% of amnestic MCI subjects who later progressed to dementia. The authors concluded that intrusion errors seen during proactive semantic interference on LASI-L subscales may be an indicator of progression to dementia in at-risk older adults. Paper number six is titled, Story Memory Impairment Rates and Association with Hippocampal Volumes in a Memory Clinic Population by first author Wong and last author Miller, published in the Journal of the International Neuropsychological Society. Some research suggests that story memory is not as good at detecting memory issues compared to list memory. In this study, the authors compare impairment rates and hippocampal volume when using story memory versus other memory tests. They reviewed records from over 1,600 older adults who completed the logical memory subscale of the Weschler Memory Scale, Hopkins Verbal Learning Test, revised, and the revised Brief Visual-Spatial Memory Test. 179 subjects had MRI data that underwent image quality assessment, and memory raw scores were assessed against hippocampal volumes. The results showed that for delayed recall, 48.8% were impaired on Hopkins' verbal learning test, 46.1% on the Brief Visual-Spatial Memory Test, and 35% on logical memory. Better performance on all three measures were correlated with greater hippocampal volumes. Memory scores improved prediction of hippocampal volumes for all measures. The authors argue that the story memory is equally associated with hippocampal volumes as other memory measures. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Next is our group of five papers focusing on tests for different aspects of cognition. Paper number seven explores clock drawing, which is a common task used to assess cognition. It's titled Frequencies and Neuropsychological Characteristics of Errors in the Clock Drawing Test by first author Umegaki and last author Kuzuya 
published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. In the study, the authors examined the relationship between Arizona clock drawing test and neuropsychological test scores. Over 1,000 participants were included in the study who were either cognitively healthy, MCI, or AD patients. The researchers compared errors in the clock drawing test to neuropsychological test scores. Stimulus-bound response, which is when the drawing is guided by just one stimulus, like time, occurred in 6.8% of cognitively healthy adults but 23.4% in the MCI and 33.2% in the AD groups. Conceptual deficits were found in over 20% of healthy individuals and about 50% of AD's patients. Planning deficits were similar across all groups. Stimulus-bound response and conceptual deficits in both healthy and MCI groups were related to lower scores on neuropsychological tests. Given the findings, the authors concluded that stimulus-bound response and conceptual deficits on the clock drawing test is useful in assessing cognitive decline. Paper number eight looks at the concept of cognitive age, which is a measure of your brain health irrespective of your actual age. The paper is titled The Cognitive Clock, a Novel Indicator of Brain Health. This is by first author Boyle and last author Bennett, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's and Dementia. The cognitive clock provides an individualized estimate of cognitive age. In this study, the authors explore whether cognitive age is a better predictor of brain health than chronological age. The initial analyses were based on over 1,000 participants from the Rush Memory and Aging Project and the Religious Order Study, who were assessed over 24 years. A shape invariant model represented the cognitive clock with individual estimates of cognitive age. The authors compared cognitive age with chronological age in the prediction of AD, MCI, and mortality, and relationship with neuropathology and brain atrophy. They also applied the cognitive clock to an independent sample of over 2,500 participants from the Chicago Health and Aging Project. They found that cognition remained stable until a cognitive age of about 80, and then declined more rapidly after that. In the initial data set, cognitive age was a better predictor of dementia, MCI, and mortality than chronological age, and was more strongly associated with neuropathology and brain atrophy. The authors argue that cognitive age can be an indicator of cognitive decline. Paper number nine is titled, Dissociating Nouns and Verbs in Temporal and Parasylvian Networks, Evidence from Neurodegenerative Diseases, by first author Lukic, and last author, Gorno Tempini, published in Cortex. In the study, the authors assess naming of nouns and verbs in different neurodegenerative diseases to explore the idea of brain network specificity. They tested naming of nouns and verbs in 146 patients with primary progressive aphasia, or PPA, AD, and behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. They also tested 30 healthy adults in the study. They correlated naming scores with cortical thickness on MRI and with performances in semantic and syntactic tasks. The authors found that patients with the semantic variant PPA named significantly fewer nouns than verbs. On the other hand, non-fluent agrammatic PPA patients named fewer verbs than nouns. Across all subjects, noun naming performance correlated with cortical atrophy in left anterior temporal regions. Verb naming performance correlated with atrophy in left inferior and middle frontal inferior parietal and posterior temporal regions. 
semantic abilities related to deficits in naming both nouns and verbs, while syntactic abilities were related to naming just verbs. The authors conclude that unique neural and cognitive networks may be responsible for naming nouns and verbs in different neurodegenerative diseases. Paper number 10 is titled Sensitive Measures of Cognition in Mild Cognitive Impairment by first author Kluster and last author Chatterjee, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Neurofibrillary tangles in AD often appear in Broadman Area 35 in the medial perirhinal cortex. In the study, the authors assess tasks that are sensitive to cognitive impairment and atrophy in Broadman Area 35. MCI and cognitively healthy subjects perform tests of semantic memory and figurative language comprehension, like metaphor and verbal analogy. Performance was compared to structural imaging and standard neuropsychological tests. The MCI group performed worse than the cognitively healthy group on the semantics and figurative language tests. Performance on the semantic memory tests related to medial temporal lobe structural integrity, including Broadman Area 35, while standard neuropsychological assessments of semantic memory did not. The authors suggest that the tests were also sensitive and specific to cognitive change. Overall, they conclude that semantic memory and figurative language comprehension tasks can be useful in detecting cognitive decline. Paper number 11 is titled Neuropsychological Equivalence of the Clinical Diagnosis of Mild Cognitive Impairment in the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center Uniform Dataset and Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative by first author Kiselica and last author Benj, from the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, published in the Journal of Dementia and Geriatric Cognitive Disorders. Combining data from large cohort studies can make our research more applicable to real-world populations. The issue is that diagnostic criteria may not always be consistent among different cohorts. This may cause variability when someone is diagnosed with MCI, for example, but not everyone is diagnosed the same way. The authors of the study compare the diagnostic criteria of AD between two of the largest cohort studies in the U.S., the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center, or NAC, and the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADNI. Demographic, psychological, and functional variables, as well as neuropsychological test results, were compared in over 700 participants with MCI from the NAC cohort and over 100 from the ADNI cohort. The two cohorts were similar in age, education, and functional status, but the NAC sample was more diverse in ethnicity and performed worse on some cognitive tests, especially when it came to language. The author suggests that this is likely because of differences in diagnostic criteria and sample makeup used in the two cohorts. This makes combining data between cohorts a little bit more difficult. Therefore, they suggest that having a standardized test may solve this problem and help to create a bigger AD database overall. Our next section covers just one paper on behavior in AD. Paper number 12 is titled Agitation in Alzheimer's Disease, Novel Outcome Measures Reflecting the International Psychogeriatric Association, or IPA, Agitation Criteria. By first author Damalion and last author Soto, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's and Dementia. 
As is probably obvious from the title, this paper focuses on the symptom of agitation in AD patients. In the study, the researchers mapped the Cohen-Mansfield Agitation Inventory, the CMI, and the Neuropsychiatric Inventory Clinician Ratings, NPIC, items to the International Psychogeriatric Criteria Agitation Domains, creating two new assessments abbreviated as CMI-APA and NPIC-IPA. I know it's a mouthful. Minimal clinically important differences, change sensitivity, and predictive validity were assessed in an agitation and aggression cohort. The authors looked at minimal clinically important differences between the original inventories compared to the new assessments, and the minimally clinically important differences ranged from negative 17 to negative 3 for the different tests at 3 months. Check out the abstract yourself in our bibliography for more details because I know it's pretty complicated. Overall, all scales equally predicted global clinician ratings and had high sensitivity to change. The authors conclude that the NPIC IPA may be the best predictor of agitation in AD and may be used in future clinical trials. Eye movements and pupil activity may be a useful tool to assess cognition. The next two papers are all about oculomotor markers of cognition. Paper number 13 is titled, Early Detection of Cognitive Decline in MCI-NAD with a Novel Eye-Tracking Test. This is by first author Tato Koro and last author Abe, published in the Journal of Neurological Sciences. In this study, the authors examined the use of an eye-tracking device to determine cognitive dysfunction. 52 healthy control, 52 MCI, and 70 AD subjects participated in the study. They found that eye tracking was significantly worse in MCI compared to healthy controls and AD compared to both healthy control and MCI groups. Eye tracking correlated well with the mini mental status examination score with an R of 0.57. Memory and deductive reasoning tasks in the eye tracking test were able to identify normal healthy controls, MCI, and AD. The authors conclude that their eye tracking test is a good screening for MCI and AD. They don't provide much detail about what their eye tracking test entails or how it differs from other eye tracking assessments out there, so you'll have to check out the original paper for that info. Paper number 14 is titled Oculomotor Behaviors and Integrative Memory Functions in the Alzheimer's Clinical Syndrome by first author Fernandez and last author Para, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. In this study, the authors assessed the eye movements and pupil responses of 18 healthy controls and 18 patients with mild AD while they performed the short-term memory binding test. The test involved remembering colors that were unbound, so remembering just the color, or bound, meaning remembering both the color and shape of an object. They found that healthy control pupils dilated significantly more for bound colors than for unbound colors, which was not seen in the AD group. The authors also report that rock analysis showed that abnormal pupillary responses differentiated AD patients from healthy controls with values of sensitivity and specificity of 100%. The next section and last section includes three papers that focus on language adaptations of common cognitive tests, which will hopefully make cognitive testing more accessible for people all around the world. Paper number 15 is titled, 
the 32-item multilingual naming test, Cultural and Linguistic Biases in Monolingual Chinese-Speaking Older Adults, by first author Lee and last author Sano, published in the Journal of the International Neuropsychological Society. In this paper, the authors explore the sensitivity and utility of the multilingual naming test battery for detecting linguistic abnormalities associated with AD and MCI in monolingual Chinese speakers in the United States. To explore this 32-item test's utility and suitability to a Chinese cohort, the researchers recruited 67 Chinese seniors, 12 with MCI, 17 with dementia, and 38 of cognitively normal status. A longer time in education improved the multilingual naming test score, while age correlated with reduction of the score. The authors observed varied responses to 20 items, which they attribute to regional language differences. Above 70% of the seniors struggled to formulate a response to the hardest words, such as porthole, anvil, mortar, pestle, and axle. Yet interestingly, the Chinese cohort contended well with some harder words, yet had issues with some words perceived easier to discern in the West. Errors emerged from words which, in the fantastic sense, and gauge which the authors attribute to cultural bias. In sum, the authors suggest that the multilingual naming test, or just MINT for short, needs further adaptation to account for differences in culture and region. Paper number 16 is titled Italian Version of the Short 1066 Dementia Diagnostic Schedule a Validation Study by first author Ibnidris and last author Albanese, published in BMJ. In this paper, the authors created an Italian version of the short 1066 Dementia Diagnostic Schedule and Algorithm. The 1066 Dementia Diagnostic Schedule and Algorithm contains a 10-word recall and the Euro-D depression scale. The authors wanted to assess the utility of this test in determining cognitive impairment. They also assessed general health and disability by the HUDAS 2.0. They recruited 229 community-dwelling individuals and nursing home residents who were 60 years old and up from Italy and Switzerland. Of the 229 um, individuals, 69% were female, 74 had diagnostic dementia, and 155 were cognitively normal. The test showed 87% sensitivity, 61% specificity, and aligned with clinical dementia diagnosis with an AUC of 0.74, Cohen's kappa of 0.4. They also also found that dementia was associated with disability and that dementia patients living in nursing homes in particular showed a greater degree of disability. In sum, the authors extend the use of the short 1066 dementia diagnostic tool to richer countries, stating its use as a useful diagnostic measure, particularly when uh, longer assessments are impractical. The final paper, paper number 17, is titled Translation and Psychometric Evaluation of a Persian Version of the Functional Assessment Staging Scale, or IFAST, in older patients with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease in Iran. This is by first author Nouruzian and last author Mohammadi, published in the journal Acta Neurologica Belgium. Functional assessment staging is a scale for determining the level of disability in a patient from subjective complaints to discernible dementia. In this paper, 
Her, the authors explore the accuracy and reliability of a Persian-translated functional assessment staging scale, which they term IFAST, and the mini-mental status exam in discriminating between cognitively normal, MCI, and AD individuals. The population contained over 200 participants, 54.7% female, with an average age of 73 years, a mix of healthy elderly and those with clinically diagnosed MCI and AD. IFAST showed 92.2% sensitivity and 98% specificity for healthy controls compared to MCI, and 99% sensitivity and 93.7% specificity for AD compared to MCI. The authors indicate that IFAST is a highly accurate test and is less prone to environmental influence, such as language, education level, and culture, compared to the mini mental status exam. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for joining me in today's episode covering June 2021 papers on cognitive and clinical indicators. Remember that our bibliography can be found in the episode notes if you'd like to delve further into any of the papers we've touched on today. We release new episodes every Monday to Friday, so stay tuned for more topics related to Alzheimer's disease. We just have a few more episodes left for the June papers, and then after that, we'll take a short break before the July series starts. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd love it if you left us a review on whatever platform that you're listening from. If you can't leave a review on the platform you're on, you can leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. This will help us reach more listeners out there who can benefit from our show. Also, if you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'd like to thank the sorting team, Jacques, Ellen Rowe, Christy, Ellen Koch, and Sarah and Nyla for sorting all the papers. Also, thank you to Jacques for helping with summaries and Ellen Kay for reviewing my script, Kate and Anusha for editing the episode and recording, and Anusha for creating the music you've heard today. You can find her on YouTube under AK Music or on SoundCloud under her name. Or if you're interested in joining the team, you can send us your CV at aminderpodcast at gmail.com and we'd happy to chat with you. Finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you are enjoying the podcast and found it useful and accessible. Bye for now.